we turn, or rather this morning, we turn our attention to Matthew 18. If you have found that and you're able to do so, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter number 18. I will read verse 21 and then we'll read verse 22 out loud together. The Bible says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times together, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Well, our theme this year, we're looking at the commands of Christ. We're looking at a series or a grouping of those commands concerning others. Today, we're going to look at Christ's command to forgive. That's the title of the sermon this morning. Just simply, forgive. This is a heavy topic because all of us in here know what it is to be offended. All of us have had people who have hurt us and wronged us. And I do not want to drum up the past. That's not my intent this morning. But I do want the Spirit of God to do what is necessary to help you to be able to forgive those who have wronged you. We're going to be very heavy in Matthew 18 this morning, looking very heavy at this topic. Jesus had a whole lot to say about it. Let's pray this morning. God, help us as we look at these truths in Matthew 18. Lord, we pray that your wisdom would, uh, Lord, not enter my heart and come out of my lips, but, Lord, would be discerned in the minds and hearts of those here today. If I preach with your power, but the sermon lands on fallow ground or deaf ears, then, Lord, it is not heard. I pray, God, that you would help each one to open up their heart, not just their ears, but their heart, And Lord God, do a work in us today that only you can do. Bless us, Lord. We're a broken people in a broken world. And Lord, we need a Savior. Not only to save us from sins, but just save us from the offense day in and day out that we both give and we deal with. Lord God, help us today to have a spirit of grace that flows through this room. Shine your love and your presence. May we live and walk by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a handful of quotes that I use as a pastor from this pulpit on a regular basis. Quotes that uh, help define who I am and the principles of which I desire to live by. And one such quote that I have given multiple, multiple times over the last uh, handful of years that I have pastored here is this one. Life is all about relationships. In fact, write that down if you can. Life is all about relationships. Um, And I can prove that from the Bible. Uh, This is a biblical quote. In fact, it is as biblical of a quote as you will hear. Uh, The two greatest commandments in the Bible are to love the Lord thy God with all thy, say it with me church, heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. We're to love the Lord our God. Now we all know that we're to love our God with all our heart. And I want to give all my emotion to love God. But I think few people know what it means to love God with your soul. And we'll dive into that here in the near future. But we're to love God, in essence, uh, what uh, Jesus is saying, or even what it says back in Deuteronomy 6, we're to love God with every fiber of our being. We're to love God every way we can. And the second command is that we are to do what? We're to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know what those two commands are? They're relationship commands. If you learn to love God, and you learn to love your neighbor, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to find a great quality of life. Oftentimes we don't love God because we're selfish, and we want to love ourselves first, and we don't love our neighbor because we don't love God. Listen now, you will never thoroughly love your neighbor until you learn how to thoroughly love your God. If you're having a hard time loving your spouse or you're having a hard time loving your, your uh, uh, a church member and you're shallow in your relationships, there's a shallowness with God. To the degree that you love God, there will be an outpouring of love to your neighbor. Jesus said this, He said, all of the rest of the commandments hang on these two commandments. I want you to imagine you have a 
tree here and a tree here, and uh, this tree is loving God, and this tree is loving your neighbor, and you have the 500 and some odd uh, commands in the Old Testament. Every single command either fits in the branches of the loving God tree or fits in the uh, branches of the loving your neighbor tree. All the commands of the Bible revolve around, do I love God or do I love my neighbor? In fact, in the Ten Commandments we find in the book of Exodus, the first four uh, involve our relationship relationship with God in the last six involve our loving of our neighbor. Show me someone who has deep relationships. I'll show you someone who is a rich, rich man or woman. In fact, he who is deep Rich in deep relationships is the richest man on earth. Uh, he or she who is rich in money of this world but have no real depth of relationships will find themselves to be poor in this world. Jesus takes the 18th chapter of Matthew and he teaches us how to handle offenses within relationships. Now, listen, if you're to come see me, and get advice on how to fix a marriage or a rift between you and a loved one or a problem between you and a brother or sister in the Lord. If you were to do that, uh, I could look at my life experiences and I could give you some advice. Can I tell you that there are going to be, uh, there's going to be a level of shallowness and there's going to be, uh, uh, that is going to be uh, uh, advice or counsel that is less than perfect. However, when Jesus gives us advice, on anything, it is a couple of things. It is always thorough, it is always thorough, and it is always accurate. Thorough and accurate. Now, in Matthew 18, we many of us know this chapter because it has the story of the great Lord who had the man with a servant who owed him a lot of money, and we're familiar with that story. But did you know that the entire chapter was written on how to forgive? How to forgive. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there someone in your life that you have not forgiven? Is there someone in your life who is either in the middle of wronging you or has wronged you and you're holding on to a grudge? I've preached many sermons on forgiveness over the last uh, six plus years of being the pastor here. But I, I listen, I can preach on it and preach on it and preach on it. And you may choose after that sermon to let go, but you turn around a day later, a week later, a month later, and you close that fist back up, you close that heart back up, and you go right back to an unforgiving spirit. And you say, Lord, I want to forgive. And in the moment you forgive, only to turn right back around and be at a place of unforgiveness. Jesus took the entire chapter of Matthew 18 and He taught us how to deal with offenses. So we're going to jump in this morning and look at three thoughts out of Matthew 18 and we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture this morning. So keep your Bibles open and keep them ready as we consider the command of Christ concerning others to forgive. Alright, here we go. Point number one. Notice the assurance of offenses. The assurance of of offenses. Look with me at Matthew 18 and look at verse number 7. Look there with me. I want you to see this with your own two eyeballs. All right? Woe unto the world because of offenses. And when you see that word woe, that means this is a big deal. It means you need to stop. You ever backed up a vehicle? Right? You ever, you ever been, in, you know, a little to the left and, and a little to the right and, and, and come back a little further. And, whoa! When you say, whoa, what's that mean? It means you better stop right now, right? Or you're going to hit something. You're going to run into something. And so when Jesus says, whoa, He says, listen, you ought not be the one committing offenses, but look at that next phrase. Read it out loud with me. Ready? For it must needs be that offenses come. Read that with me again, will you? For it must needs be be that offenses come. We can do better than that. Let's read it like we're Baptists. Amen? Here we go. Ready? For it must be that offenses come. Well, when I read that, what I see is Jesus said, you, there's one thing you can count on in life, and that is offenses. People are going to offend. He goes on to say, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life um, with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into 
hellfire. We're going to look a little bit closer at verses 8 and 9 here in a few moments. But notice here that offenses will come. Notice letter A. To offend means to trespass. Trespass. A little later in the sermon, we'll look at verse 15 in Matthew 18 and see the word trespass used in regards to offense. But uh, it means to trespass. When I was a little boy... Uh, I helped my dad with his bus route, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I was just there uh, last Sunday. But we had a bus route there, an eight, nine-year-old boy. We had a home where we had some kids come out of that home. Across the street was a peculiar house, and I never once walked onto their property. And there was a very clear reason as to why I did not do that. They had a giant yellow sign in the front window with red letters. And it read this in big, bold letters. It said, No trespassing. No trespassing. And you know what? That is not what kept me off the lawn because I was an eight-year-old boy. I would have gladly still walked on the lawn, but what it said below that kept me off the lawn. It said this. It said, uh, violators will be shot. And then below that it said, survivors will be shot again. I didn't go anywhere near that property. I didn't want to get shot at, all right? Uh, once or twice. What does it mean to trespass? It means to cross a boundary and intrude into a space which you, where you do not belong. So there's a boundary. You're not supposed to be there. And you walk onto someone else's property. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 5 with me. Hold your place in Matthew 18. We're going to do a little Bible study here on this word trespass. Um, you hear words like trespass and sin and iniquity and wickedness and evil and, and all of these carry with it the idea of doing wrong, but each one uh, is their own word for a specific reason. Morally speaking, to trespass is to wound or damage someone by an act of sin against that person. I commit a sin against a person and as a result, I damage them in some way. I wound them in some way. It's not just carelessly wandering onto a piece of property. It's wandering onto that property, the equivalent would be, and burning down their house or, um, or smashing the windows of their car or slashing their tires or uh, uh, poisoning maybe the, the landscape in their yard and causing that to die. It's not just wandering onto the property. It's doing harm to the property. And when someone commits a moral trespass. They're not just wandering onto uh, uh, your uh, intellectual property or your emotional property. They're wounding you. They're damaging you. And in the Old Testament, when someone committed a trespass, God required a hefty, hefty price to be paid. Look at Leviticus 5. Look at verse 15. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy thing of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass, look at the price that has to be paid, unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks, with thy estimation by shekels of silver, and the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. So, when you trespass against God, when you have offended God, and by the way, don't anybody here tell me that you never get offended? Because that's just not true. All right? Everybody gets offended sometimes. And you say, well, not me. Liar. <laughs> How many in here uh, have been offended by someone within the last week? Raise your hand. All the married people, raise your hand. <laughs> all right. Uh, we all know what it means to be... And you say, well, I don't get offended. Well, I guess that makes you better than God. Because the Bible says that sin offends the heart of God. And so if God can be offended, so can you. So can you. Sin offends. And uh, to the pious crowd that says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Listen, I love the Bible. I read it every day. But sometimes I get my feelings hurt. And so do you. So do you. When you were to trespass the law of God, what were you to do? You were to take a ram 
That's an expensive animal. And you were to sacrifice that animal and you were to reach in your pocket and you were to take out uh, coins, silver coins, shekels of silver, and you were to pay the price because of uh, the trespass you had committed against the Lord. Um, Turn over with me to Numbers chapter 31. Um, There are times when we choose to break God's law on our own. We just are callous and we're we're, we're maybe... uh, 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 careless, or we are um, uh, just uh, uh, like a bull in a china shop. If I'm going down the road and I'm speeding, maybe I'm in a part of the country I'm not familiar with, and I get pulled over and I'm going 12 over the speed limit, and the officer says to me, you're going 57 in a 45, and I look at the officer and say, well, I didn't know the speed limit. I'm not from around here. Here's my Connecticut driver's license. Uh, if he's a good police officer, he's going to say, Well, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. You still broke the law. You have to pay the fine. Right? You say, well, that's not a good police officer. That's a mean police officer. I like the ones that let me off or just give me a warning. Uh, But a just police officer will give you a ticket if you have broken the law. That's his job. That's He's doing what he's supposed to do. And sometimes we trespass the law on purpose. Sometimes we do it accidentally. uh, and, And we do those things on our own. Other times... People do things to us that cause us to break God's laws, or they lead us into it. Numbers 31, we find the story. We find the story of Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab. And Balaam saw, or rather, Balak, the king, saw uh, the Israelites walking near his territory, and he became frightened by them. And so he calls Balaam in uh, through a series of wooing him and, and, and bribing him. He gets Balaam into the camp to stand up and curse God's people. Uh, but uh, Balaam is not able to do it. The Lord takes over Balaam's vocal cords and his mouth. And he ends up blessing God's people three distinct times. He cannot curse God's people. But as uh, he gets through that, he pulls Balak to the side And he says, while I can't publicly curse them, I can give you some advice that will cause those young men down there to trespass. He said, take the prettiest, most sensual, provocative Moabitess girls and send them down into the camp to flirt with those Israeli boys. And they will lead them into fornication or sex outside of marriage. And then through those lustful relationships that will lead them into idolatry. Look at Numbers 31 and look at verse 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Balak, Balaam, through his counsel, gave Balak advice on how to cause Israel to trespass. Uh, Israel was not out looking for, Israeli boys were not out looking for Moabitess girls, but the Moabitess girls came looking for the Israeli boys, and because of the sin of the Moabitess girls, it caused them to commit trespass. You maybe are familiar with the phrase, hurting people hurt people. I think at this point we've all heard that quote or are familiar with it. Somewhere along the line, you may have been deeply wounded by somebody who took advantage of you and wronged you. And you've never fully recovered from that. You were emotionally wounded and your emotional growth has been stunted. You've been wounded in such a way that's caused a deep offense deep into your soul. Now, if you're not careful, you'll turn around and hurt people. Or, there's the other option where you cut people out of your life and you have shallow relationships because you've put a wall up around you in isolation and now God cannot use you to love others because you're selfishly holding on to that offense and you won't forgive. We keep everyone at arm's distance. We won't let anybody in. You may not be actively hurting somebody, but you're also not loving somebody because you have been hurt. You have been hurt. You don't deal with this properly. Then it's going to remain an open wound that becomes spiritually infected and causes you to turn around and hurt others. If I were to walk by 
uh, Brother Sean over here, and I were to just haul off, and I were to just punch him in the arm as hard as I could. I think if I swung hard enough, I probably could leave a bruise. Now, I'm not going to do that to you, Sean, all right? But if I did, I'd haul off and I'd punch him as hard as I can and leave that bruise in his arm. You know what? The next day, all I'd have to do is walk up and poke him in that bruise and it would feel like I'd just punched him all over again. You know what? If I walked up today and I poked him without a bruise, it wouldn't bother him. Well, with that bruise there, I poke. All of a sudden, that poke feels like a punch. Some of you here, all it takes is someone to poke you and you, ow, 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 ow. Because life has punched you in the arm and you've never let it totally heal. Someone else has caused you to trespass. And then there are those who cause others to trespass. Turn over to Joshua chapter 7. To offend means to trespass. You know the story. The Israelites are conquering their promised land. They come to the first city of Jericho. They're told to march around the city for seven days, uh, once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times and they shout and the wall falls over and they go in and they conquer Jericho. God says to them, this first fruit in battle is to remain mine. Do not take anything, burn the city with fire and leave it as an offering to me. Achan goes in and his conquering and he takes some gold and some silver and a Babylonian garment from the city and he buries it below the tent in his home. His family is complicit in this trespass against a holy God. And God is not pleased with it. And now all of a sudden, Achan is going to inflict pain and death upon many people, including himself. Look at Joshua 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the son of Judah, took of the accursed thing and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. They would go into battle against the next city of Ai. You say, how do you spell Ai? You spell it Ai. Amen? You go into the city of Ai and 36 men would lose their life because of this great offense, this trespass that Achan has committed. And then Achan and his family would be stoned and then burned because of their sin. So to offend means to trespass. Letter B, we see to offend means to trip or to trip up. Uh, to trip. I didn't put up at the end because that's not grammatically correct. Amen? Uh, to offend means to trip. Look back with me at Matthew chapter 18 and look at verse number 8. Wherefore, wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Do you ever get discouraged thinking that you just can't overcome sin in your life? Some sin's got a hold on you and it just won't let go. And you think, how in the world am I going to beat this thing? Uh, my brain has been going down this path for all these years, and I just keep falling into the same rut, the same trap, over and over again. Jesus said, in essence, that you need to take extreme measures to make sure that your own body does not cause great offense to you, uh, 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 great, excuse me, does not cause great offense to your own self. Sometimes your hands can be such a problem that your hands cause you an offense or your feet can be such a problem they cause you an offense. And Jesus said if your hands are causing you to sin, cut them off. You say, oh, pastor, this passage is hyperbolic. I don't believe it is. Now, I've yet to meet the person who walks around with two nubs and says I cut my hands off because I couldn't put down the bottle and I kept getting drunk. I've yet to meet the person that says I was so given to violence that I cut my hands off and that way I wouldn't hit anybody. I've yet to meet the person that says, uh, I, I kept going sinful places, so I cut my feet off so I wouldn't be able to walk there. I've yet to meet the person that says, I couldn't quit looking at wicked things, so I plucked my eyeballs out. But Jesus says that if these body parts are going to keep you from getting saved, then you need to do what you need to do in order to make that happen. I have shared the story, but years ago I uh, went to uh, follow up on a man who had come to our Spanish church 
down in Maryland, and uh, he was renting a room uh, from some folks who were also Hispanic. And so that man we were looking for wasn't home, but the other folks living in the house were. And so I gave them the gospel. I gave them a very thorough explanation of the gospel in the Spanish language. I, I got down to the end and I asked the man, I said, would you like to receive Christ as your personal Savior? And here's what he said to me. He said, I'm not ready to do that. He said, I'm having too much fun living my life. He said, I get drunk every weekend, and if I get saved, that probably means that I have to give up my alcohol, and I would rather have my alcohol than to have salvation. His feet and his hands were such an offense to him that it was keeping him from being saved. To offend means to trip, but how about when our offenses begin to not only trip up us, but begin to trip up others? Now, Matthew 18, I've done a lot of study of this chapter over the years. There's so much here, as it is with all of Jesus' teaching. They're so deep and complex and multifaceted. And we're taking the angle of uh, Matthew 18 as it pertains to forgiveness, offensive forgiveness. But there's another theme that runs through this chapter. It is the theme of children and how children are to be handled. Look at Matthew 18 and verse 1, and we see how these two thoughts come, come together. The Bible says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let me stop right there. If there's ever been a leading question, this is a leading question. You can see the 12 disciples. Jesus, who? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven? And Jesus, they were hoping Jesus would say it was one of them. But he didn't. Look at verse number 2. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are people who... I tell folks I got saved when I was a four-year-old boy. I mentioned earlier in the service how last Sunday I stood right at the spot where I got saved as a child. And I got really emotional standing right there. It was so special. I sat in that auditorium last Sunday morning while the pastor was preaching and looked around the room and just took it, just took it all in. And I had nostalgia just washing all over me. It was, it was wonderful. It really was. And uh, listen, I, people will say, can a four-year-old really get saved? Can a four-year-old really believe in Jesus? And they, they imply that he's not, he's not old enough. He's not capable enough yet. But Jesus right here said that it isn't children that need to become like adults to get saved. Adults need to become like children to get saved. I don't think I'm stretching the passage, folks. Now, why would that be? Here's the issue. As we get older, we get skeptical. We get skeptical toward everything and everyone in life. Children aren't skeptical. They have an unadulterated faith. A faith that is pure as the driven snow. This week I watched as teenagers took something called a wordless book. and It's a book of colors. It's got a gold page that uh, allows a, a visual about heaven. And then it has a dark page that is a visual about sin. And then it's got a red page that's a visual about the blood of Jesus. And a white page that's a visual about uh, the clean heart that God wants to give you. And the cover of the book is green, representing growth after you get saved. And I watch these teenagers take this book and very methodically and carefully show little kids, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, about how they could be saved. And I watch these little kids bow their head and put that God-given faith in Jesus to be saved. What a beautiful thing. It's a lot easier for a child to believe than an adult because a child has a faith that is pure. And Jesus said, you have to be converted like into one of these children. Look at verse number 4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones... Here's where these two thoughts come together. Whosoever, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, 
It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, it's one thing to offend an adult who has his perspective and worldview of God already set in stone, but to take a child who's trying to figure out this world and take that faith that God has put in his heart and to abuse that, to harm that, through some sort of sin, the Bible says it's better that you be cast in the depths of the sea and be drowned. Now, I think this verse is oftentimes misunderstood to mean if someone commits a sexual sin against a child, then they need to be thrown in the depths of the sea. And that is true, but that is not all this verse is talking about. Offending the faith of a child can be something as simple as an education system that's leading children away from God and the humanism and secularism and environmentalism and Pride Week, Pride Month. Isn't it interesting that it's called Pride Month? The Bible says that pride is a sin. The Bible says that the, the wicked wear pride around their neck like a chain. They flaunt it. They show it off. God resisteth the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We are offending children in our culture. God says it's better that they be cast in the depths of the sea. We have a generation, and I live in a generation of kids who have been tripped up by secularism and sin. And we yet do it again to another generation. Those that do these things intentionally and trip up people uh, intentionally, the Bible says it's better they were cast in the depths of the sea. We see the assurance of offenses. One thing is for sure, Jesus said, for it must needs be that offenses come. All of us get offended. All of us do our share of offending. Number two, let's talk about our approach to offenses. Our approach to offenses. Look at chapter 18 and look at verse number 15. I wish I had till 3 o'clock this afternoon to lay out everything I got out of this chapter and studying the sermon, but we're going to hit the highlights and let you go home and look at the rest of it yourself. Look at 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, uh, with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Notice here, reconciliation, letter A, reconciliation with the humble. Reconciliation with the humble. Way back when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, they committed sin. Their sin or trespass caused a separation from their Creator. The whole purpose of Jesus' life was to reconcile mankind to God. Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 there with me. Notice it says, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Same idea here. Why was Jesus even on earth to teach this? He was there for the purpose of reconciling the humble. Now, I need some men to help me out uh, real quick with uh, a visual illustration. If I could have three men come up here and help me. Uh, can I have some guys come up? Brother Nino, can you help me out? Brother Josh, can you help me out? Uh, Brother Sean, would you be willing to come up here and help me out? No one's volunteering, so I'm just going to pick you out of the crowd. Amen? Come on up here and help me. Brother Nino, let's have you stand over here by this speaker facing this way. Uh, Brother Sean, let's have you stand here by this speaker facing this way. And Brother Josh, let's just have you stand back here for the time being, all right? Keep an eye on him. Make sure he behaves himself, all right? Now, there's no human representation of God, and I don't mean to imply that anyone up here is God-like. All of us, all four of us men up here are sinners. See me after church. If you pay me enough, I can tell you, all right? Uh, I'm just teasing. But uh, here you have Nino, and for the sake of this example, he's going to represent God. And over here, Brother Sean's going to represent all of us, humanity, all right? Uh, and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and all the offspring. And so, when God made mankind, He made him sinless. 
there was a perfect fellowship between God and man. In fact, Jesus would, or rather, God would come down in the cool of the day and would walk with man. They had perfect fellowship. They had a unity that was inseparable as long as mankind stayed away from that fruit of the tree that they were not to eat. Then one day, Adam and Eve ate of that fruit and God came down and He rebuked them for doing that because they had broken that law. And God said, The day that ye eat that fruit, ye shall, say it with me church, surely die. What does that word die mean? It means to be separated. So God then, turn around for me, turn His back on man, all the way around, and fellowship between God and man became broken over our sin. And when you're born into this world, you are born with God having His back to you because you're born in sin. We call this a condemnation. The end result, if you die with God having His back to you, is that you will go to hell and suffer for all of eternity because God wants nothing to do with a man or woman who is living in sin. However, God, with, with this separation and His back turned to humanity, God still loved us and He wanted a way to salvage us. So God sent Jesus down to the earth and Jesus came and stood between God and man and Jesus suffered the wrath of God in His own body on the tree so that uh, penance could be made, so that forgiveness could be given and a relationship could be restored. Now, the moment that you believe that Jesus Jesus died for you on the cross, an amazing thing happens. God turns back around and He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus shed His blood to wash away the sin stain off your record. And when you believe, a seal is put over your name in the Lamb's book of life and you are saved forever. Now, you're born, step back for me, you're born uh, under a condemnation and the moment you believe in Jesus, Jesus steps between you and God and a relationship is restored. You with me this morning? This is how this works. So, now... Stay with me here. For reconciliation to happen between you and God, two things have to occur. There has to be a humbling of the divine to save your soul, and there has to be a humbling of your heart to be saved. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God had to humble Himself in order for reconciliation to happen. And so, uh, God has done His part to reconcile you to Him. Now He waits on you to lay down your pride and come to Jesus and believe in Him to have this relationship restored with God. Watch this. It's not just enough that God humbled Himself for you. You have to humble yourself in order to be reconciled to God. You with me this morning? Now, stay up here, guys. Let's tie this in to everyday living. Come back over here. Step back there. Turn back around. Someone's offended you. Someone's offended you. And now you want nothing to do with them because they've done wrong. Do you know the only way that this relationship is going to be restored is if both the offended and the offender are willing to humble their heart and meet in the middle. Come come in the middle, guys. Check hands. You guys love each other? You have anything you need to get? No, I'm just teasing. No public confession. You guys can be seated. Thank you. Give them a round of applause. They did a great job. You say, Pastor, someone offended me deeply. And they want nothing to do with me. A lot of times broken people will hurt you and then they just move on with their life and they're too proud to fix it. So, Pastor, what do I do? You know what you do? You find it in your heart to humble yourself. And you sit at the table, metaphorically, and wait for them to come humble their heart so reconciliation can be made. Now I know that many people hate the word confrontation. They hate it. Let me ask this morning, 
How many of you are uncomfortable with confronting someone who has done something wrong to you? Would you raise your hand? You're uncomfortable doing that. All right, put your hands down. How many of you have no problem confronting someone who has wronged you? All right. Good. Kind of. All right. Okay. Um, someone said to be a pastor, you shouldn't like confrontation, but you can't be afraid of it either. You've got to be able to confront, and you can't shy away from confrontation, but you can't go be looking to stick your finger in everybody's face and confront, confront, confront. I think the same thing is not just true about a pastor, it's true about every Christian. Many, many people, way more hands are raised for not wanting to confront. Now, I know that even though Jesus said it, you think, oh, I could never do that. Let me help you right here. All right, I'm going to help you. Let's say here that uh, I do, do something. As far as I know, Erlon and I have always been on good terms. All right? And if, if that's not true, you can tell me later. But let's just say that I did something that really, really hurt Erlon. Let's say I hurt Erlon and I said something, I was very rude to him, I was very unkind to him, and it wasn't like a passive-aggressive thing. I was calling him names and just being nasty, and now Erlon's all offended over my behavior. And let's say that Erlon gets in the car and he picks up the phone and he calls Sean over here. Can you believe Pastor Lejeune? Hi, he said this, that, and the other. And you know what gossip is? Gossip is when you say something about someone that isn't true. Or, or conflated or exaggerated. Slander is when you say something that's not, that's not good and also true. And you know what? Gossip is a sin and slander is a sin. Well, let's say everything he says to Sean is correct. Has Erlon confronted? Yes, he's confronted Sean over my wrongdoing. The problem isn't with Erlon that he can't confront. The problem is he can't confront me. So don't tell me you can't confront. Because all of us in here have had somebody do us wrong and we get on the phone and we, we call someone and we tell them. Or we get on Facebook and we make some vague post about how people are so mean and nasty in this world. Right? And only the people who really know you know what's being said. And I, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Glory to God I'm not on Facebook anymore. But back when I was on Facebook years ago, the people that drive me craziest on there were people who would be like complaining about their problems in some vague way. And then all of their closest friends would be like like talking in this vague code underneath. I'm like, stop it! Just stop it, right? Go confront the pe- person and uh, deal with it directly. The old song says, you can talk about me as much as you please. I'll talk about you down on my knees. You know what? The only two people you get to talk to about an offense to you is God and the person who wronged you. Look back with me at the verse here. Look back with me at verse number 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. Read the next handful of words. Between thee and him... Oh, I can't hear you. Between thee and him... What's that word? Alone. Alone. We all together on this? You go to that person alone. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1. This morning we're having a little bit of spiritual surgery for some of you. And some of you in here don't need a 30 minute outpatient surgery. You need a four hour long open heart surgery. Alright? It won't be a four-hour sermon, but if we take a little bit longer this morning, uh, we're helping people today. Look at Galatians 6 and look at verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Someone's offended you, they're overtaken in a fault. Especially if they have sinned against you, they've overtaken, been, been overtaken in a fault. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. I have that, those words circled in my Bible, in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You go confront someone who's done you wrong, is everyone going to listen? No. Will it work every time? No. But will it work more often than you think it will? Yes. Especially if you set your emotions to the side and you approach the person with great humility. Listen, watch this now. When people have done things that have hurt me and offended me, here's what I do every time. I give it 24 hours and I say nothing. 
I don't talk to my wife about it. I don't talk to my kids about it. I don't talk to Pastor Andrew about it. He's the assistant pastor. I don't talk to anybody about it. I take 24 hours and I sit on it. The only person I talk to about it is the Lord. And you know what happens when I get on my knees with the Lord? You know what the Lord does? He says, you were offended because you have a pride problem. Who? Now this is on me. And you know what? good chunk of the time when people offend me, I don't ever say anything to them. Because it's me that had the problem more than they have the problem. But if I feel the need to move forward after 24 hours of praying on it and getting my emotions settled and being in the spirit of meekness, I will go to the person one-on-one and I will share with them the offense and ask them for restoration. I'm not going to blow off steam. I'm not going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm not going to make them feel guilty and awful and bury them with, 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 with anger. No, I'm going for the purpose of reconciliation. You must go in a spirit of meekness. And meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Turn over to James chapter 4 and verse number 6. James chapter 4. Pastor, I I have a a humble heart and I'm ready, but no reconciliation has been had. Well, hang tight. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Look at this verse. This is so key to relationships. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, read the rest of the verse with me, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. When you confront someone and they have a humble spirit, the two of you can reconcile. When you confront someone and they have a haughty spirit, oh, that's a whole other thing. Letter B. We saw letter A, reconciliation with the humble letter B, we see the rejection of the haughty. The rejection of the haughty. Look back at verse 16 in Matthew 18. Go back to our, our principal text. Verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. This is heartbreaking and difficult, but when people will not humble their heart and repent for their offenses, it causes a divide in the relationship. Jesus himself dealt with this when he walked the earth. I want you to see these verses. I know I have you all over the place this morning, but please turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter, if you turn to Revelation and turn back just a couple of books, you'll be in 1 Peter. You've got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2, and 3 John, Jude and Revelation. Uh, most of those books are little. So get to Revelation, just a handful of pages over, you'll find 1 and 2 Peter. Uh, it's after James and before 1 John. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 7. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Everybody there? Look at verse number 7. Unto you therefore, which believe he is precious, speaking of Jesus, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. To whom was Jesus a rock of offense? To whom was Jesus a stone of stumbling? To those who rejected truth and wanted to continue to live a lie. You may remember in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that He came not to bring peace, but a sword. Why? Why did Jesus say that? Because two cannot walk together when one wants truth and the other wants to live in a lie. You cannot reconcile with someone who wants to live in darkness and pride and a lie, and you go to them and you talk to them and you dress it with them humbly and with a weak, meek spirit, and they want nothing to do with it, and they push back and they won't accept their, their, their offense, they won't accept their wrong, they want to live in a lie, then, re, then there is a rejection of the haughty. There is a breaking off of that relationship. Now, it's really amazing that to you and I who in here today who are saved, Jesus is a stepping stone. But to the lost, Jesus is a stumbling stone. The same Lord, the same truth. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I read that and say, well, then I'm going to get in the way. I'm going to get in the truth. I'm going to get in the life. And I'm going to go to heaven. Other people say that, well, the Bible is just a narrow-minded book if Jesus only made one way to heaven. 
You see how one person says Jesus is the way, I'm going to believe in Him, and another person finds that totally offensive. You're going to have people who hurt you deeply, and then you address that with them, they're going to want nothing to do with it. Listen, you can't do anything about that. You stay humble. Number three, let's notice lastly our attitude of forgiveness. And we turn our attention to the parable Jesus told at the end of the chapter, letter A, we see Christ's illustration. Christ's illustration. Look at verse 24. We see a crippling debt. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents of gold in today's currency is $3.5 billion. $3.5 billion. Between money morrowed and interest accrued, this man had dug, dug a financial hole that he would never get himself out of. He owed a debt that he could not pay. And now the king was calling him in to pay that debt. He and his family would have to go to debtor's prison as collateral. A crippling debt. We also see in Christ's illustration a compassionate Lord. Look at verse 25. Before as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord have patience with me and I will pay thee all. I love verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. The man humbles himself before his Lord and asks for mercy and more time to be given to pay off this insurmountable debt. And what does the master do? He decides to take the note and just tear it up and say, you don't owe me anything. Wow. Wow. Imagine if you owed Elon Musk $3.5 billion and he just said, I'm going to let it go. Wow! Let me give you an example. Maybe you can relate with a little bit more. Imagine the bank called you tomorrow and said, Hey, your uh, house has been paid for. You don't owe another dime. Some of you think, oh, I've already paid off my house, Pastor. That doesn't apply to me. Imagine someone called you tomorrow and said, The property taxes on your home are paid from now until the day you die. Amen! It'd be great, wouldn't it? Those of you who rent, look, I want to get everybody in here. Imagine your rent is just paid from now until the day you die. Free housing. Wow, that'd be great, wouldn't it? This man owed $3.5 billion. And the guy said, see you later. What a compassionate Lord. We see a crippling debt. We see a compassionate Lord. Notice next a cold response. Look at verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he should pay that debt. Pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now I want you to picture this, alright? You have this man who's very rich. He's called the Lord of this story. He's sitting in a giant room of sorts, uh, 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 and he's called everyone in who owes him money, and he's, he's calling in uh, the note. they got to pay. And so there's a line out the door onto the street of people who are paying him, and uh, this gentleman comes up, and three and a half billion dollars of debt is just wiped away. And so he goes running out the door, he's jumping, he's lip leaping, he's skipping, he's so happy on his way home to tell his wife, and all of a sudden, he sees a guy that owes him a hundred dollars. And he grabs him by the collar. And he says, pay me what thou owest. And the guy drops to his knees and he says, give me some time and I'll pay you the hundred bucks. He says, no! 
You're coming with me. And he walks right past the servants who are in line to see the king, and he throws the guy in debtor's prison and starts to make his way home. Man, these people in line, they get up to the Lord, the, the, Lord, the master, and they say, hey, you know that guy you just forgave $3.5 billion of debt to? He just threw a guy in jail for a hundred bucks. And the king says, or the Lord says, bring that man back to me. He says, the debt is unforgiven. You now owe every penny of it and you're going to jail. So you have it paid off. What a weird response. We see a crippling debt, a compassionate Lord, a cold response. But notice a convicting parallel. What was Jesus getting at here? Let's talk about that crippling debt. Just as no common man could ever pay back a $3.5 billion debt, you and I could never pay off the sin debt that we owe. Hear me now. The penalty for sinning against a holy God is death in the lake of fire for all of eternity. That's how great your debt is. That's how much God hates your sinful lifestyle and your pride. Now let's talk about a compassionate Lord. God looked down on you and your brokenness and He decided that He was going to pay off your sin debt. You see, for Him to forgive your debt, He had to reach into His uh, 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 account and He had to pay the price. That's what the cross is all about. God sent Jesus to the cross to die in your place because the debt of your sin was so great. The only way it could be paid was with you burning in hell or Jesus dying on the cross for you. Oh, what love divine that Christ would save this soul of mine. But yet we respond coldly, a cold response when you won't forgive someone who has offended you, then you are no different than this wicked servant who threw his friend in debtor's prison for a hundred bucks. Maybe they have wronged you on a level that is greater than a hundred dollars. Maybe they hurt you and you were a child. But let me remind you that if you are saved, then you have been forgiven by your Savior of an eternity in hellfire. When you refuse to forgive others and humble your heart, you are choosing an irrational and cold response. And you're just as nonsensical as the gentleman who threw his buddy in jail for a hundred pence. We see Christ's illustration. Notice letter B and lastly, Christ's expectation. Oh, please don't let me lose you right here. Don't close up your Bible quite yet. Please don't shut me out of your mind and your heart. Give me just five more minutes and we're almost done. The Lord is answering Peter's question about forgiveness. And here's what he says is his expectation. Look at verse 34. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him. Notice the words Jesus chooses very carefully. Delivered him to the tormentors. Underline those words in your Bible. To the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And so likewise, Jesus says, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now many have misinterpreted this passage to mean that God will take away your salvation. That is not what this means. Rather, God will not break off the relationship He has with you, but He will break off fellowship with you and it will cause you as a Christian to lose all sense of spiritual bearing. He takes away His joy and peace out of your heart. He takes away His love and His patience from deep within you. You begin to become a bitter person wandering through life with brokenness and a stench in stinky relationships. Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 6. One more passage this morning. Matthew chapter 6. You understand that when you refuse to forgive, then God turns you over to tormentors. I have had so many people I have counseled through the years who were miserable, miserable, miserly, miserable people. 
And when I begin to dig deep and I begin to ask questions and I begin to poke and prod and observe spiritually, what I find is that there is a bitterness down in their soul because they've yet to forgive sin. They've yet to forgive a trespass. They've yet to forgive a wrongdoing against them. Look at verse 14. Don't take my word for it. Take the words of Jesus. But if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I'm almost done, but please, please, please listen in. How is it that a Christian could bend a knee and a heart, look up at a suffering Savior on the cross who shed His blood and literally died of a broken heart on a tree for your sin and say, Lord, forgive me of an eternity in hell. Forgive me of my sin and take me to heaven when I die. And then get up each day as a child of God and confess and forsake sin and say, Lord, forgive me, I I trespass you. Lord, forgive me, I trespass you. Lord, day after day, Lord, forgive me, I trespass you. And then have someone wrong you and you can't forgive them what they've done to you? And God says, if you're not going to forgive them, then don't even bother coming to me in prayer because I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to do it. If you won't forgive your brother his trespasses, then I'm not going to forgive you your trespasses. Oh, Christian, I know that forgiveness is an easy topic to explain. It is a difficult topic to put into practice. Pastor Lejeune, where do I begin? You begin by humbling your heart and asking God to forgive you or give you uh, forgiveness. First, you confess your sin of bitterness and unforgiveness and you ask Him to flood your heart with compassion and love for the person that's hurt you and the ability to forgive them. Let me just finish by saying this. Forgiveness does not mean trust. Just because you forgive someone does not mean you have to trust them or even communicate with them, especially if there's someone who's out of your life and someone who's no longer part of your life, but you still can forgive them. That does not mean you have to trust them. Forgiveness does mean you're letting go of the offense and you're giving vengeance over to God where it belongs. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Life is all about relationships. Life is all about relationships. Some of us have a shallow relationship with others because we have unforgiveness in our heart. We've not let go of an offense. And I just want to remind you that offenses will come. You can be assured of that. It is pride that keeps us from forgiving. It is a lack of perspective on our own salvation that keeps us from forgiving. Remind you, God, God has called us to maintain a spirit of humility and meekness. While we forgive those who have done us great wrong. What is the command of Christ? It's to forgive. It's to forgive. Let me ask you but this morning... By way of invitation, how many of you here, God has laid a person on your heart who you haven't forgiven? And you say, Pastor Lejeune, pray for me that God will give me the courage to forgive that person. That you, would you raise your hand? God's put someone on my heart. They've hurt me. They've offended me. Pastor, pray God will give me the courage to forgive them. Many hands have been raised. Let me ask again, how many of you should have raised your hand the first time and you didn't? You know God's working on your heart right now. You know you need to let that go. Pastor, pray for me. Here's my hand. Pray for me. You didn't raise it the first time. You should have. Pastor, pray for me. God's put someone in my mind. I need to forgive them. Amen. May God give you the courage to begin that difficult process today. Who here would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life where I gave my heart to Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. If that's you and that's your testimony, would you just raise your hand? I know I'm going to heaven. I have believed in Jesus alone to be my Savior. Would you hold your hands up? I don't be ashamed. Romans 10 says I'm not ashamed. Amen. You can put those down.
Is there one here today that would say, Pastor Lejeune, I can't forgive others the way I ought to because I have yet to experience the forgiveness of Christ. The Lord still has His back to me because I've yet to humble my heart and believe on Him. If you do not know for sure you're going to heaven when you die today, boy, humility requires an admission of wrongdoing. Is there one here today that says, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you hold up your hand? I just don't know. Is there one here today? I just don't know. I see that hand. Anyone else? I just don't know if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. My friend, if you raise your hand, why don't you come down here during the invitation? I'm sure many are going to come to the altar this morning to pray. Many ought to come to the altar this morning. Why don't you join them down here? Take Pastor Andrew, let him shake his hand and tell him that you'd like help with this matter of salvation. White Oak Baptist Church, we need to make sure that we humble our hearts and we bend our knee in prayer. You see, it's pride that keeps us from forgiveness. It's pride that keeps us from an altar. It's pride that keeps us from humbling ourselves and kneeling and asking God for help. You don't have to walk this altar to begin to uh, walk this aisle and kneel at this altar to forgive the, begin the forgiveness process, but it's symbolic that you're going to. God's working on your heart this morning. Why don't you leave your pew your seat right where you are and make your way down here and bend a knee and beg God to help you with that. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed.